Section 4 of Legends of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. Legends of Charlemagne by Thomas Bullfinch. Section 4 The Siege of Albraca. At the very time when Charlemagne was holding his plenary court and his great tournament, his kingdom was invaded by a mighty monarch, who was moreover so valiant and strong in battle that no one could stand against him. He was named Gradasso, and his kingdom was called Saracane. Now as it often happens to the greatest and the richest to long for what they cannot have, and thus to lose what they already possess, this king could not rest content without Durindana, the sword of Orlando, and Bayard, the horse of Rinaldo. To obtain these, he determined to war upon France, and for this purpose put in array a mighty army. He took his way through Spain, and after defeating Marsilius, the king of that country, in several battles, was rapidly advancing on France. Charlemagne, though Marsilius was a Saracen, and had been his enemy, yet felt it needful to succor him in this extremity from a consideration of common danger, and, with the consent of his peers, dispatched Rinaldo with a strong body of soldiers against Gradasso. There was much fighting, with doubtful results, and Gradasso was steadily advancing into France. But impatient to achieve his objects, he challenged Rinaldo to single combat, to be fought on foot, and upon these conditions. If Rinaldo conquered, Gradasso agreed to give up all his prisoners and return to his own country, but if Gradasso won the day, he was to have Bayard. The challenge was accepted, and would have been fought had it not been for the arts of Malagigi, who just then returned from Angelica's kingdom with set purpose to win Rinaldo to look with favor upon the fair princess who was dying for love of him. Malagigi drew Rinaldo away from the army by putting on the semblance of Gradasso, and after a short contest, pretending to fly before him, by which means Rinaldo was induced to follow him into a boat in which he was borne away, and entangled in various adventures, as we have already related. The army left under the command of Ricciardetto, Rinaldo's brother, was soon joined by Charlemagne and all his peerage, but experienced a disastrous rout, and the emperor and many of his paladins were taken prisoners. Gradasso, however, did not abuse his victory. He took Charles by the hand, seated him by his side, and told him he warred only for honor. He renounced all conquests on condition that the emperor should deliver to him Bayard and Durandana, both of them the property of his vassals, the former of which, as he maintained, was already forfeited to him by Rinaldo's failure to meet him as agreed. To these terms Charlemagne readily acceded. Bayard, after the departure of his master, had been taken in charge by Ricciardetto, and sent back to Paris, where Astolfo was in command, 
in the absence of Charlemagne. Estolfo received with great indignation the message dispatched for Bayard, and replied by a herald that he would not surrender the horse of his kinsman Rinaldo without a contest. If Gradasso wanted the steed, he might come and take him, and that he, Estolfo, was ready to meet him in the field. Gradasso was only amused at this answer, for Astolfo's fame as a successful warrior was not high, and Gradasso willingly renewed with him the bargain which he had made with Rinaldo. On these conditions the battle was fought. The enchanted lance in the hands of Astolfo performed a new wonder, and Gradasso, the terrible Gradasso, was unhorsed. He kept his word, set free his prisoners, and put his army on the march to return to his own country, renewing his oath, however, not to rest till he had taken from Rinaldo his horse, and from Orlando his sword, or lost his life in the attempt. Charlemagne, full of gratitude to Astolfo, would have kept him near his person and loaded him with honors, but Astolfo preferred to seek Rinaldo, with the view of restoring to him his horse, and departed from Paris with that design. Our story now returns to Orlando, whom we left fascinated with the sight of the sleeping beauty, who, however, escaped him while engaged in the combat with Pharaoh. Having long sought her in vain through the recesses of the wood, he resolved to follow her to her father's court. Leaving, therefore, the camp of Charlemagne, he travelled long in the direction of the east, making inquiry everywhere, if perchance he might get tidings of the fugitive. After many adventures he arrived one day at a place where many roads crossed, and meeting there a courier, he asked him for news. The courier replied that he had been dispatched by Angelica to solicit the aid of Sacrapant, king of Circassia, in favour of her father Galifron, who was besieged in his city Albraca by Agrican, king of Tartari. This Agrican had been an unsuccessful suitor to the damsel, whom he now pursued with arms. Orlando thus learned that he was within a day's journey of Albraca, and feeling now secure of Angelica, he proceeded with all speed to her city. Thus journeying, he arrived at a bridge, under which flowed a foaming river. Here a damsel met him with a goblet, and informed him that it was the usage of this bridge to present the traveller with a cup. Orlando accepted the offered cup and drank its contents. He had no sooner done so than his brain reeled, and he became unconscious of the object of his journey, and of everything else. Under the influence of this fascination, he followed the damsel into a magnificent and marvellous palace. Here he found himself in company with many knights, unknown to him and to each other, though if it had not been for the cup of oblivion of which they had all partaken, they would have found themselves brothers in arms. Astolfo, proceeding on his way to seek Rinaldo, splendidly dressed and equipped as was his wont, arrived in Circassia, 
and found there a great army encamped under the command of Sacrapont, the king of that country, who was leading it to the defense of Galifron, the father of Angelica. Sacrapont, much struck by the appearance of Astolfo in his horse, accosted him courteously and tried to enlist him in his service. But Astolfo, proud of his late victories, scornfully declined his offers and pursued his way. King Sacrapon was too much attracted by his appearance to part with him so easily, and having laid aside his kingly ornaments, set out in pursuit of him. Astolfo next day encountered on his way a stranger knight named Sir Florismart, lord of the Sylvan Tower, one of the bravest and best of knights, having as his guide a damsel, young, fair, and virtuous, to whom he was tenderly attached, whose name was Flordelis. Astolfo, as he approached, defied the king, bidding him yield the lady, or prepare to maintain his right by arms. Florismart accepted the contest, and the knights encountered. Florismart was unhorsed, and his steed fell dead, while Bayard sustained no injury by the shock. Florismart was so overwhelmed with despair at his own disgrace and the sight of the damsel's distress that he drew his sword and was about to plunge it into his own bosom. But Astolfo held his hand, told him that he contended only for glory, and was contented to leave him the lady. While Florismart and Flordelis were vowing eternal gratitude, King Sacrapant arrived and coveting the damsel of the one champion as much as the horse and arms of the other, defied them to the joust. Astolfo met the challenger, whom he instantly overthrew, and presented his courser to Florismart, leaving the king to return to his army on foot. The friends pursued their route, and ere long Flordelis discovered, by signs which were known to her, that they were approaching the waters of oblivion, and advised them to turn back or to change their course. This the knights would not hear of, and continuing their march they soon arrived at the bridge where Orlando had been taken prisoner. The damsel of the bridge appeared as before with the enchanted cup, but Astolfo, forewarned, rejected it with scorn. She dashed it to the ground, and a fire blazed up which rendered the bridge unapproachable. At the same moment the two knights were assailed by sundry warriors, known and unknown, who, having no recollection of anything, joined blindly in defense of their prison-house. Among these was Orlando, at sight of whom Astolfo, with all his confidence not daring to encounter him, turned and fled owing his escape to the strength and fleetness of Bayard. Florismart, meanwhile, overlaid by fearful odds, was compelled to yield to necessity and comply with the usage of the fairy. He drank of the cup and remained prisoner with the rest. Flordelis, deprived of her two friends, retired from the scene and devoted herself to untiring efforts to effect her lover's deliverance. Astolfo pursued his way to Albraca, which Agrican was about to besiege. He was kindly welcomed by Angelica, and enrolled among her defenders. Impatient to distinguish himself, 
he one night sallied forth alone, arriving in Agrican's camp, and unhorsed his warriors right and left by means of the enchanted lance. But he was soon surrounded and overmatched, and made prisoner to Agrican. Relief was, however, at hand, for as the citizens and soldiers were one day leaning over their walls, they decried a cloud of dust, from which horsemen were seen to prick forth as it rolled on toward the camp of the besiegers. This turned out to be the army of Sacrepent, which immediately attacked that of Agrican, with the view of cutting a passage through his camp to the besieged city. But Agrican, mounted upon Bayard, taken from Astolfo, but not armed with the lance of gold, the virtues of which were unknown to him, performed wonders and rallied his scattered troops, which had given way to the sudden and unexpected assault. Sacrapon, on the other hand, encouraged his men by the most desperate acts of valor, having as an additional incentive to his courage the sight of Angelica, who showed herself upon the city walls. There she witnessed a single combat between the two leaders, Agrican and Sacrapent. In this, at length, her defender appeared to be overmatched, when the Circassians broke the ring and separated the combatants, who were borne asunder in the rush. Sacrapent, severely wounded, profited by the confusion, and escaped into Albraca, where he was kindly received and carefully tended by Angelica. The battle continuing, the Circassians were at last put to flight, and being intercepted between the enemy's lines and the town, sought for refuge under the walls. Angelica ordered the drawbridge to be let down, and the gates thrown open to the fugitives. With these, Agrican, not distinguished in the crowd, entered the place, driving both Circassians and Cathayans before him, and the portcullis being dropped, he was shut in. For a time the terror which he inspired put to flight all opposers. But when at last it came to be known that few or none of his followers had effected an entrance with him, the fugitives rallied and surrounded him on all sides. While he was thus apparently reduced to the last extremities, he was saved by the very circumstance which threatened him with destruction. The soldiers of Angelica, closing upon him from all sides, deserted their defences, and his own besieging army entered the city in a part where the wall was broken down. In this way was Agrican rescued, the city taken, and the inhabitants put to the sword. Angelica, however, with some of the knights who were her defenders, among whom was Sacrapent, saved herself in the citadel, which was planted upon a rock. The fortress was impregnable but it was scantily victualled, and ill-provided with other necessities. Under these circumstances Angelica announced to those blockaded with her in the citadel her intention to go in quest of assistance, and having plighted her promise of a speedy return, she set out with the enchanted ring upon her finger. Mounted upon her palfrey, the damsel passed through the enemy's lines, and by sunrise was many miles clear of their encampment. It so happened that her road led her near the fatal bridge of Oblivion, and as she approached it she met a damsel weeping bitterly. It was Flordelis, whose lover, Florismart, 
as we have related, had met the fate of Orlando and many more, and fallen a victim to the enchantress of the cup. She related her adventures to Angelica, and conjured her to lend what aid she might to rescue her lord and his companions. Angelica, accordingly, watching her opportunity and aided by her ring, slipped into the castle unseen, when the door was opened to admit a new victim. Here she speedily disenchanted Orlando and the rest by a touch of her talisman. But Florismart was not there. He had been given up to Falerina, a more powerful enchantress, and was still in durance. Angelica conjured the rescued captives to assist her in the recovery of her kingdom, and all departed together for Albraca. The arrival of Orlando with his companions, nine in all, and among the bravest knights of France, changed at once the fortunes of the war. Wherever a great paladin came, pennon and standard fell before him. Agrican in vain attempted to rally his troops. Orlando kept constantly in his front, forcing him to attend to nobody else. The Tatar king at length bethought him of a stratagem. He turned his horse and made a show of flying in despair. Orlando dashed after him as he desired, and Agrican fled till he reached a green place in a wood where there was a fountain. The place was beautiful, and the Tartar dismounted to refresh himself at the fountain, but without taking off his helmet or laying aside any of his armor. Orlando was quickly at his back, crying out, So bold, and yet a fugitive! How could you fly from a single arm and think to escape? The Tartar king had leapt on his saddle the moment he saw his enemy, and when the paladin had done speaking, he said in a mild voice, Without doubt you are the best knight I ever encountered, and fain would I leave you untouched for your own sake, if you would cease to hinder me from rallying my people. I pretended to fly in order to bring you out of the field. If you insist upon fighting, I must needs fight and slay you, but I call the sun in the heavens to witness I would rather not. I should be very sorry for your death. The Count Orlando felt pity for so much gallantry, and he said, The nobler you show yourself, the more it grieves me to think that in dying without a knowledge of the true faith you will be lost in the other world. Let me advise you to save body and soul at once. Receive baptism, and go your way in peace. Agrican replied, I suspect you to be the paladin Orlando. If you are, I would not lose this opportunity of fighting with you to be king of paradise. Talk to me no more about your things of another world, for you will preach in vain, each of us for himself, and let the sword be umpire. The Saracen drew his sword, boldly advancing upon Orlando, and a combat began, so obstinate and so long, each warrior being a miracle of prowess that the story says it lasted from noon till night. Orlando, then seeing the stars come out, was the first to propose a respite. "'What are we to do?' said he, now that daylight has left us. Agrican answered readily enough, "'Let us repose in this meadow, and renew the combat at dawn.' 
the repose was taken accordingly, each tied up his horse and reclined himself on the grass not far from the other, just as if they had been friends. Orlando by the fountain, Agrican beneath a pine. It was a beautiful clear night, and as they talked together before addressing themselves to sleep, the champion of Christendom, looking up at the firmament, said, That is a fine piece of workmanship, that starry spectacle. God made it all, that moon of silver, and those stars of gold, and the light of day, and the sun, all for the sake of humankind. You wish, I see, to talk of matters of faith, said the Tatar. Now I may as well tell you at once that I have no sort of skill in such matters, nor learning of any kind. I never could learn anything when I was a boy. I hated it so that I broke the man's head who was commissioned to teach me, and it produced such an effect on others that nobody ever afterwards dared so much as show me a book. My boyhood was therefore past, as it should be, in horsemanship and hunting and learning to fight. What is the good of a gentleman's poring all day over a book? Prowers to the night and preaching to the clergyman. That is my motto. I acknowledge, returned Orlando, that arms are the first consideration of a gentleman, but not at all that he does himself dishonor by knowledge. On the contrary, knowledge is as great an embellishment of the rest of his attainments, as the flowers are to the meadow before us and as to the knowledge of his maker, the man that is without it is no better than a stock or a stone or a brute beast. Neither without study can he reach anything of a due sense of the depth and divineness of the contemplation. Learned or not learned, said Agrican, you might show yourself better bred than by endeavoring to make me talk on a subject on which you have me at a disadvantage. If you choose to sleep, I wish you good night. But if you prefer talking, I recommend you to talk of fighting or of fair ladies. And by the way, pray tell me, are you not that Orlando who makes such noise in the world? And what is it, pray, that brings you into these parts? Were you ever in love? I suppose you must have been, for to be a knight and never to have been in love would be like being a man without a heart in his breast. The Count replied, Orlando I am, and in love I am. Love has made me abandon everything, and brought me into these distant regions, and to tell you all in one word, my heart is in the hands of the daughter of King Galifron. You have come against him with fire and sword to get possession of his castles and his dominions, and I have come to help him for no object in the world but to please his daughter and win her beautiful hand. I care for nothing else in existence. Now when the Tartar king, Agrican, heard his antagonist speak in this manner, and knew him to be indeed Orlando, and to be in love with Angelica, his face changed color for grief and jealousy, though it could not be seen for the darkness. His heart began beating with such violence that he felt as if he should have died. Well, said he to Orlando, we are to fight when it is daylight, and one or other is to be left here dead on the ground. 
I have a proposal to make to you, nay, an entreaty. My love is so excessive for the same lady that I beg you to leave her to me. I will owe you my thanks and give up the siege and put an end to the war. I cannot bear that any one should love her and that I should live to see it. Why, therefore, should either of us perish? Give her up. Not a soul shall know it. I never yet, answered Orlando, made a promise which I did not keep. And nevertheless, I own to you that, were I to make a promise like that, and even swear to keep it, I should not. You might as well ask me to tear away the limbs from my body and the eyes out of my head. I could as well live without breath itself as cease loving Angelica. Agrican had hardly patience to let him finish speaking, ere he leapt furiously on horseback, though it was midnight. Quit her, said he, or die. Orlando, seeing the infidel getting up, and not being sure that he would not add treachery to fierceness, had been hardly less quick in mounting for the combat. Never, exclaimed he, I never could have quitted her if I would, and now I would not if I could. You must seek her by other means than these. Fiercely dashed their horses together in the night-time on the green mead, despiteful and terrible were the blows they gave and took by the moonlight, Agrican fought in a rage, Orlando was cooler, and now the struggle had lasted more than five hours, and day began to dawn, when the Tartar king, furious to find so much trouble given him, dealt his enemy a blow sharp and violent beyond conception. It cut the shield in two as if it had been made of wood, and though blood could not be drawn from Orlando, because he was fated, it shook and bruised him as if it had started every joint in his body. His body only, however, not a particle of his soul. So dreadful was the blow which the paladin gave in return, that not only shield but every bit of mail on the body of Agrican was broken into pieces, and three of his ribs cut asunder. The Tatar, roaring like a lion, raised his sword with still greater vehemence than before, and dealt a blow on the paladin's helmet, such as he had never yet received from mortal man. For a moment it took away his senses. His sight failed, his ears tingled, his frightened horse turned about to fly, and he was falling from the saddle when the very action of falling threw his head upwards and thus recalled his recollection. What a shame is this, thought he. How shall I ever again dare to face Angelica? I have been fighting hour after hour with this man, and he is but one, and I call myself Orlando. If the combat lasts any longer, I will bury myself in a monastery and never look on sword again. Orlando muttered with his lips closed and his teeth ground together and you might have thought that fire instead of breath came out of his nose and mouth. He raised his sword, Durindana, with both hands, 
and sent it down so tremendously on Agrican's shoulder that it cut through breastplate down to the very haunch, nay, crushed the saddle-bow, though it was made of bone and iron, and felled man and horse to the earth. Agrican turned as white as ashes, and felt death upon him. He called Orlando to come close to him with a gentle voice, and said as well as he could, I believe on him who died on the cross. Baptize me, I pray thee, with the fountain, before my senses are gone. I have lived an evil life, but need not be rebellious to God in death also. May he who came to save all the rest of the world save me. And he shed tears, that great king, though he had been so lofty and fierce. Orlando dismounted quickly with his own face in tears. He gathered the king tenderly in his arms, and took and laid him by the fountain on a marble rim that it had, and then he wept in concert with him heartily, and asked his pardon, and so baptized him in the water of the fountain, and knelt and prayed to God for him with joined hands. He then paused and looked at him, and when he perceived his countenance changed, and that his whole person was cold, he left him there on the marble rim of the fountain, all armed as he was, with the sword by his side and the crown upon his head. End of section 4